Welcome back to Unprecedential. I'm Adam White. It's often said you only get one chance to make a first impression. And one of the people who've said this, one people of many, is none other than George Washington. On March 23rd, 1789, he wrote a letter to his nephew, George Steptoe Washington, who was then just 17 years old. And he was giving his nephew advice on how to make that step from childhood and adolescence into the life of a grown man in the world. And in this beautiful letter, Washington says this, quote, as the first impressions are generally the most lasting, your doings now may mark the leading traits of your character through life. It is therefore absolutely necessary, if you mean to make any figure upon the stage, that you should take the first steps right. What these steps are and what general line is to be pursued to lay a foundation of an honorable and happy progress is the part of age and experience to point out. Washington writes this beautiful letter, but remarkably, he's writing it practically on the eve of leaving Mount Vernon for this journey to New York, where he will be inaugurated as the first president of the United States. And in so doing, he's making three first impressions. His own first impression as the president of the United States, the presidency's first impression under the Constitution, and in many ways, the Constitution's own first impression, at least as they moved towards its initial writing and the first steps of Congress into actual administration, which, as we often point out on this show, Alexander Hamilton said was the true test of a good government. Now, in our previous episode, we were fortunate to be joined by Jeffrey Tulis, author of The Rhetorical Presidency, and Gary Schmidt, an expert of the presidency, my colleague here at AEI. And in today's episode, it's my real pleasure to be joined by Professor Stephen Howard Brown. He's a professor of communication arts and sciences at Penn State University and a distinguished scholar of the National Communication Association. His previous books include Edmund Burke and the Discourse of Virtue, Jefferson's Call for Nationhood, and The Ides of War, a study of Washington and the Newburgh Crisis. He returns once again to these themes of virtue and nationhood and Washington. In his new book, it's titled The First Inauguration, George Washington and the Invention of the Republic. Stephen, welcome. Adam, I just couldn't be more happy to be here and, and have this opportunity to speak with you about this endlessly engaging and, and important figure, a figure upon the stage, as you say. Well, the feeling is mutual. This is a wonderful book. I'm not exaggerating. It's one of the best books I've read all year, quite possibly the best book. And it's a real pleasure to be joined by its author. And I really encourage our listeners, I hope this conversation will inspire you to get out and buy it because it's definitely worth reading. And Stephen, you point this out in the very opening pages of the book, you say, quote, we need to call to mind the story of Washington's inauguration, because in it, we discover vital resources for the reanimation of civic life. We need, like every generation, to invent a version of the first president to meet our own particular, but hardly unique challenges. We need to listen to what he has to say, because what he has said and how he said it offers us a gift we cannot afford to ignore or cynically dismiss. It's a wonderful way to open this book and exactly right. Why don't you elaborate on that a little bit? Why should we study Washington's first inauguration? Very good. Thank you. As a student of the art of rhetoric, I'm familiar with a English translation of Aristotle's treatise on rhetoric, lo these millennia later, which defines the art as the faculty for discovering in any given case the available means of persuasion. And it's that notion of an available means of persuasion that I use to sort of leverage this account of Washington. 
he stands to me very much, including, not in spite of, but including the warts and the tragic dimensions, the, the failures, as well as the achievements. He stands, as it seems to me, an endlessly productive resource, not only for what to argue and what to say, but how to say it as an actor in civic life. And it seems to me we proceed at our peril by forgetting that fact. The address itself is well worth studying, and we'll get to the inaugural address in a moment. But one of the real joys of reading this book is it's a journey beginning with his departure from Mount Vernon and his journey north to New York. You detail in the book the stops along the way, beginning just about 15 miles north in, in Alexandria, Virginia, and all the way up. And, and we can't, we don't have time in a one hour podcast to do justice to that. It's why people need to buy the book. But why don't you just say, if you could please say a few words about the actual journey, the trip from Mount Vernon to New York. And a journey it was. Part of what motivates the project in general was in my reading of the accounts, the local newspapers, the private letters, correspondence, diaries, and so forth, was the, the sense of, of joy, of anxiety, of noise. Everybody loves a party. Lots of flip and bounce, which I take are some 18th century versions of rum and coke or something. I, I couldn't quite figure it out. But music and banners and carrying on. What drew me in was the, the festive culture that attended every step of the way. I mean, in some cases, literally every step of the way. Now, none of this, of course, was improvised. As you know, of course, everyone knew what was going to come down in terms of the election itself. So they were primed, primed for it. And they knew what they were doing. That is to say, these local hosts. And what, what struck me along the way was a couple of things. What you'd expect, nothing too much untoward or anything, but the gathering of the local worthies, the toasts, the eating, the drinking, the speaking, oftentimes by Washington, as near as I could tell, perhaps sometimes it was a letter. But importantly, the local worthies saw it as an occasion to say what they had to say. And yes, most of it was in the manner of, we are so delighted to have you in our, in our humble town sort of thing. But not always, but not always and not at every step, particularly as he started getting north and up into Maryland and Delaware and then into Philly and in Jersey, things started heating up. People had things to say, like in our language, what do you have in mind about sort of trade agreements and tariffs and the currency situation and so forth? So the thinking is that it was an opportunity not just for rotomontade and fancy, you know, emceeing sort of thing. It was, it seemed to me, an example of what civic life appropriate to the Republican experiment ought to look like. Yeah, you, you see throughout the story, both Washington and the people he, he comes across sort of learning in real time what it means to be a republic. That's right. And if I may, the use of that phrase, real time, is, is just is spot on. <laughs> Not that they were making it up out of whole cloth or anything, obviously, as, as they moved along. But what they were doing was they were performing republicanism. Washington was, the people listening to him was, people, not many, who were criticizing him for putting on the dog rather excessively for a Republican president. There was a little bit of that, fair enough. But what they were doing was rehearsing what it meant to be an American citizen. What did it mean to be an American citizen? Yeah, well, I don't think they knew. 
first of all. And, and when I say they, you don't need me to rehearse the various exclusions that were right. quite real. But if one was in the main, not entirely a white Euro-American, one had a presumptive claim to citizenship. In truth, again, it was utterly unclear in a sense what, what that really meant. I mean, you could say that, and, and indeed he did, fellow citizens, that kind of thing. But you'll forgive the ahistoricism, but all we have to do is look ahead a few years to the French Revolution when, when that term citizen in, in English shows itself for the radical character it has. So, Adam, they were inventing citizenship along the way. Arguably, we still are. Your book, I mean, it begins in a way before the journey, right? You, you teach us not just what Congress did to sort of send a messenger down to Mount Vernon, but you really paint a picture of what Washington himself is leaving behind as he boards his, his horse, his carriage, I suppose, and, sure. and heads north. Can you give us a sense of that? You bet. And in order to do so, let me loop back to that nice letter that you read in yeah. the thing in which you sort of underscore that notion of the figure on the stage. Well, I have to say, I'll try to say this efficiently, but it's kind of hard because of the bulk of the scholarship and the length of the man's life and all. But read enough of the scholarship, which was in writing, which is after all being produced during his very lifetime until today. If you're not careful, one can come away with this image of Washington as the strong, silent type, all of that on your junior high classroom wall. Actually, Washington had, let the evidence show, an exquisite sense of drama. He understood the stage, and he understood the stage because ultimately he understood, I think, better than any person alive at the time, power. So this matter of, as literally in a sense of staging himself into office needs to be taken seriously and as more than a metaphor. That is to say, in part, it helps us to understand how important it was not just at the moment, but again, for the prospects of republicanism generally, that power shows itself. And the way in which power shows itself is on the stage. He knew exactly what he was doing at every step. The toasts he anticipated, he had the right people around him. He got that because he understood power, he understood politics. And part of being on the stage, so to speak, is, is wearing, I wouldn't call it the right costume, but knowing the clothes make the man. And you, you detail that. I, I was just searching for the passage. I couldn't find it. But if I remember correctly, he writes a letter to his old friend. Was it Henry Knox? He writes a letter yeah, to Henry uh-huh. Knox because he's looking for, and he describes in detail in this letter, you know, fine American cloth for a suit of clothes. And you describe how much thought Washington put in. I mean, he didn't overthink it. And it wasn't, he wasn't going right. for the sort of the style, you know, trying to be the cutting edge of fashion. But what he wanted was clothing that would embody and exemplify republicanism, which was a difficult balance between too fine and something beneath the nature of the office. That's right. And to underscore some of that, and I appreciate your your observation that one needn't overthink it or make too much of it, but there is a kind of a semiotics of dress that's very much at play and still is, of course, that is to say, sort of the symbolic power as they are associated with what literally how power is attired in that sense. So it's especially just real quick, interesting to, I love reading these accounts of these figures who go over to France, Jefferson, Adams, or even the court of St. James, and they come back and talk, right? And so on. 
and these are not rubes by any stretch, but they are almost to a person mortifying at the uh, sumptuousness and, and kind of the over the top. So this matter of, and I know that letter, you know, where he writes to Knox of all people and says, hey, can you find this tailor for me and have this made out? Again, he knows exactly what he's doing. And others, of course, will pick up on that. Jefferson, for instance, is conspicuously downdressed as he, as he gives his. Not too far down. These are obviously elites and they, they have to look a certain way. But I would argue the matter of the dress is itself very much a part of this whole inventional process, this available means of persuasion. How ought a Republican to appear? How ought a Republican to sound? You know, those were at stake. This journey, I mean, today we do it in a day, we do it in a a couple of hours, I suppose, on the shuttle flight from Washington Airport to New York. This trip for Washington, though, takes several days. He has to make many stops along the way. What sorts of places did he stay in on the way? And what does that say about his notion of republicanism. I will say, as a result of this project, I have infinitely more respect for authors who can sustain those, those nice, tight narratives in the detail, because they can get out of hand in a hurry. But I couldn't resist that very question and then yeah. needing to follow up on it and to ask, well, what did it mean, like a tavern? What does that even mean? Is like you stated back around of some bar somewhere along <laughs> Jersey, you know, I, I don't think yeah. so. the city tavern in New York. Well, actually, the, the concept of tavern or the what we might call like a hotel, that too is still very much in process. Roadside inns, who stays there? What, what do you do? There? So the idea was, well, you had options. And indeed, a number of prominent figures, Robert Morris, for instance, the vastly wealthy Philadelphia and says, hey, you can stay at my place. All these people along the way. And Washington writes back and says, listen, thank you. I appreciate it. But, you know, I'd I'd better stay. Maybe we'll stay at the city town or something. And they would put on the dog for him, for sure. So again, it's not like he's slumming it or anything, obviously. But if you've been to the city tavern in Center City there, it's not (laughs) particular. It's nice, you know, but but it's, it's hardly grandiose. So yes, sending that message, no question. Although now I, I do, I have looked at the menus that these characters, I mean, that, that was a good sturdy 18th century menu these, these guys would dig into, but that's a long way from the court of Versailles, put it that way. As I was you know, getting ready for, for our conversation, yeah. just in the last couple of weeks, I came upon an article at the website of Aeon, A-E-O-N.co.co. There's an article in there by Professor Vaughn Scribner. He's a professor of history at the University of Central Arkansas. The article is called Drunks and Democrats, and it's about the role of taverns in the building of sort of civic society in America. The next book I need to read, I suppose, is called In with Two Ends, I-N-N, Civility, Urban Taverns and Early American Civil Society. You joked a moment ago about in this book, taking the narrative in some different directions. I thought this was a great touch, and I thought it's really indispensable in, in helping your readers understand the real journey. Because as you say at the beginning of the book, this book was needed in part because people just gloss over. They just sort of skip from yeah. Washington's, from his election to him taking the oath of office. And touches like this, focusing on the, the taverns and where he stayed and his worries about staying at Morris's house and being seen as a, with aristocrats on this particular journey, it says a lot. It sure does. Again, without ever losing sight, that he is, of course, I mean, if there ever was a cultural elite in that sense. 
and everybody gets that, but he yeah. knew what he was doing. He was sending a message. So you mentioned, we talked about this briefly, but I, I do want to return to it, the, who he saw along the way. I mean, partly he saw crowds, and this is just amazing, is the crowds who knew he was on this journey, who would greet him along the way. And in some ways, I think celebrating themselves, not in an egotistical way, but celebrating what a feat this was to have ratified this constitution and, and unanimously elected this leader. Of course, the people, it wasn't unanimous all the way down, and, and there were dissenters in the constitutional project in general, and you touch on that in the book. But he saw the crowds, and then he saw the people at each city who would give talks. And why don't you, could you say a few words about that? Everybody from sort of the, the society of the Cincinnati to, at some point, I think there were the judges of the courts of law, all these different, today we call them stakeholder groups, maybe, in our, this constitutional project who want to say something. So let's see if we can sort of parse out the, the folks who were leaning in on the whole moment. Because I, I tried to pay particular attention, yes, to the board of trustees at what we now call Penn sort of thing. Yes, because you're right. A lot of stakeholders for sure. But one interesting way perhaps of identifying s- some of these key players in ways that I would argue then and now continue to sort of shape some of our thinking about the dynamics of early republicanism might include these sorts of groups. One is, one notices that on virtually every step of the way, the business leaders of a given community, Wilmington, Delaware, something, they would make sure, like I was saying earlier, that they got an audience, so to speak. So it'd be the equivalent of the local chamber of commerce, I suppose, turning out having a nice dinner for them, some toasts and, and all. But I've read those, those speeches, and I try to feature them a little bit. And again, they're quite pointed about what they might expect in terms of fiscal policy and, and so on. So there's the business community is very much present here. Secondly, you'll notice that pretty much along every step of the way, not, not everybody, but as you mentioned, the militia turns out, variations on that theme. That strikes me as not a trivial matter, because what it is, is a reassertion. You don't need me to tell you, but it's a reassertion of a visible military presence and a declaration of the importance of that presence to the protection of the Republican experiment. And as you know, things were talked about making it up and inventing as you're going along. The status and the relationship of military to civil government is still very fluid and will continue to be for some time. Then thirdly, clearly there's more, including just folks who turn it out, drink some beer and roast the pig sort of thing. And that, that's important too. But thirdly, I would put the spotlight, of course, on, for want of a better phrase, clergy for these various, including Jewish groups that it gets a little more played down the road. But I was struck by how frequently the letters to various clergies along the way. Can I just, as a quick footnote? Please, please, go ahead. One of the things I loved was finding out along the way, because some things never change. And that is these people writing to Washington to hit them up for a job. Right. And they would, some of them were so heart rendering, like, you know, I lost my family, the Brits, I was, I fought by your side, or hey, we were old horse racing buddies or something back in the day, didn't matter. They would use whatever they had to sort of try to get an entree into what would become his cabinet, such as it was, you know, or just some sort of role, the century of the guard and 
Baltimore or something. It didn't matter. And Washington had a very a beautifully scripted response to all of those in which he says, listen, I, I appreciate it, but not going to happen. It's not going to happen. I can only appoint people on the basis of their merit. And I wish you and the wife and the kids well, and thank you for your service. But this is probably going to be the last we'll talk about this matter. Well, that's a good turning point then to my next question, actually, which is all along the way, lots of people are saying a lot of things. What's Washington saying to these audiences? Uh, It's not boilerplate. I thought it would be because it would have been easy enough to get Madison or Humphreys or one of the gang, you know, to, to whip something up. And there's a little bit of that, you know, for sure. The rehearsal of the thank yous, and as one might expect, I mean, you can't just make it up every step along the way. But he is responsive to these sort of localized, gentle, but nevertheless unmistakable prompts from about you know tariff rates or something that he'll make sure to be responsive to that. So with respect to clergy, or if the trustees of a given college, university host him, He'll talk about the importance of education in Republican government and so on. How much did Washington compose by his own hand these statements? Hard to tell. And I continue, even after all these years, to struggle with the attribution of authorship when it comes to Washington. But they're quite striking and they're beautifully reproduced in the papers of George Washington. One other question about this. As he's meeting with these people along the way, What do they call him? Because today we just call him Mr. President. We take that for granted, but you couldn't have taken it for granted at that time because as with everything else, they're they're laying these precedents in the first instance. And so I'm sure they could have called him any manner of things. And once again, given that this was the opening steps of the Republic, what people called him and what he answered to mattered. That's right. No question. And, And as you know, it's not long. And some good scholarship recently has been, been, been written on this, like even just should even call him president. And John Adams is saying, president, is, that's like the guy who runs my, the soccer team back home in Boston, <laughs> that kind of thing. So, but to answer your question, I think Joe Ellis is pretty clear on this and, and demonstrates that generally what, what you see is it comes down to either His Excellency or General Washington. And he seemed to be just fine with that. Yeah. <laughs> a chummy, backslapped sort of fella along those lines. But usually in the more formal occasions, it would be his excellency. Yeah, just one last note on this. There's so many just turns of phrase in the book that are really striking. This is another yeah. of my favorites. As you're describing the scene at Philadelphia, and as an example of the scene all along the way, you say this, quote, does all this suggest that Philadelphians were of one mind on the Constitution? By no means and no one in the right mind would have assumed as much, festivals such as the Grand Federal Procession in Philadelphia, they were repeated from Portsmouth to Charleston, functioned precisely to conjure, if only for this day, a vision of what unity might look like in these unprecedented circumstances. You analogize it to the traditions from a moment of birth, a moment of childbirth. Right. I usually don't talk about, you know, for obvious reasons, you know, having fun with composing a book. But I, getting down on the street like that, so to speak, was fantastic and, and educational along the way, particularly in Philly and, and New York, if you'll forgive me, but I can't resist. I mean, like say, some things never change. When John Adams comes down to, for, for the big doings, he writes back to Abby, to Abigail, and, and, say, and says, listen, you know, I've been here for a week. He said, 
there's all these languages. I can hardly ever find anybody who speaks English. If they do, they talk so fast that I can't understand them. Everybody's on a hustle and it's everything's so expensive. I can't believe it. And she says, well, why don't you come home? Nah, I'll, I'll stay here. <laughs> <laughs> Point being that maybe sometimes we forget or not, but I mean, Philadelphia and what we now call New York City or, or Manhattan were extraordinarily diverse. And in fact, some really great work by like Shane White and others have gone down into the neighborhood and down the streets and, and looked at old property deeds and, and all. And what they're demonstrating not only is the kind of the proximity and the diversity where I've seen letters from just folks visiting New York City for the first time. And they said, you know, they could, they could stand on a street corner in New York City like for hours and here to see unending differentiation. Okay, all of that, right? But also the living quarters were so integrated, where you Irish, Italian, free and enslaved African-Americans, all in a big hubbub down there. So what you have is virtually unprecedented degrees of ethnic linguistic differentiation, right? And there they all are. But if the numbers are straight, and sometimes I don't even believe them, like, but virtually something like a third to a half of the entire city of Philadelphia turned out for Washington when he crossed that bridge and rode up into town. Towards of half, And then they just had a heck of a party for the next two, three days, near as I could tell. That seems to me not a small thing, because under those circumstances, all, all that difference came together and acknowledged a shared humanity. As you point out, again, in the Philadelphia discussion, Philadelphians, in any case, loved a good party. They still do. <laughs> And and, and you sort of describe along the way, Washington, to the extent he's hoping to to have moments for reflection, to plan for his administration, those are few and far between before he gets to Philadelphia. And by the time he gets north of Philadelphia, that's all done. There's just too much. There's too many people and places to see just on that route up to New York. And so he gets to New York. He crosses over onto Manhattan. What sort of scene awaits him there? Well, one can almost imagine, right? And and it's been nicely set up all along the way, including, I I can't resist the, if you'll forgive me, but- No, please. Sort of over the top image on the cover of of the book. It's 1845, the Courier and Ives print depicting Washington coming into Trenton with all the girls and the young women singing songs and flowers and festoon and all of that. So it was getting- I mean, New Jersey, you know how they are. They love, love a good party as well. So, <laughs> so it just seemed to build and build and build. By the time, okay, onto the barge, out of Elizabeth, as it was called then, and, and up into the upper harbor and into past the battery. And there you are. Well, they were waiting for him, as you can imagine. And who was waiting for him? Well, the usual suspects in one respect, of course, but again, also militia, town folks. I wish I had a better could have gotten more granular, but it was getting hard to find the, the actual evidence. But it's clearly most of that town had turned out. And then he needs to sort of barricade himself for a little bit and, and talk to people he's got to talk to. But they're ready for him all along the way. And along the way, it wasn't, you couldn't take for granted where he was going to stay, at least not at first. The same when he gets to New York, there isn't an official residence. But I think you're right, Governor yes. Clinton offers him his residence. Washington doesn't take that. He ends up staying at a house on Cherry Street by Osgood. And I forgot to mark down the... Do you recall who who Osgood was? 
a local landowner and kind of a worthy of businessman who had a nice place that was open. It's sort of a little, not shocking, but it's good to be reminded in a sense of what a different world it could be sometimes. It's like, better find them someplace to stay. And, and they sort of dickered and this and that and negotiated a little bit and found them a nice house down on the corner a little bit. You know, it, it struck yeah. me casual, frankly. And so the scene that awaits Washington, it's a good reminder that this is a foundational moment for the new constitutional government, but business had started earlier. I was thinking back as I was getting ready for today's conversation, I might have gotten it wrong in my earlier episode with Jeff Toulos and Gary <laughs> Schmidt. First, the Congress meets, what, March 5th or 6th. That's when business really starts according to a law that had been passed by the Confederate Congress. They come in, among their duties is to count the electoral votes, just as we're seeing now. We're recording this in, in mid-December, although it'll come out a little later. Then they invite Washington, and then Washington comes back. So by the time he arrives, and his inauguration is at the end of April of 1789, federal government has been in business of a sort for over a month. And here we are again in, in New York, which is already an incredibly important city. There is much in terms of both the people, but also the government awaiting his arrival. But his arrival then is that turning point where things move from the framing of a constitution and the framing of laws into their actual execution and administration. That's right. I don't want to signal too far ahead here or anything, but that seems to me exactly that kind of liminal moment that is staged itself on the second floor of Federal Hall with the taking of the oath and then the address afterwards here. Because it's tricky business. I mean, you're a specialist in this, Adam, I know, but this matter of just, again, precisely what the presidency, what the chief executive meant. I mean, Article 2 is, it's not wordy. (laughs) It's a a little cryptic, it seems to me. But it was under those circumstances, and again, I don't mean to push my own particular thesis here too much. What needed to be staged, it seemed to me, wasn't so much the apparatus of government. That was getting into place, at least. What needed to be staged was the character of leadership. And that's what needed to be staged. It needed to be seen and it needed to be heard. So he gets to the second floor of Federal Hall and he does two things. First, he swears the oath, which is provided for in the Constitution itself. I should say you mentioned the constitutional text of Article 2. Your book does such a nice job of setting that up as well, right? You you pause to describe just the struggle behind formulating what the presidency is before it can even be filled. So Washington swears the oath in public, and then he turns inside into the Senate chamber where he'll give this inaugural address. So it's not as today, you know, the inaugural address is for everybody in attendance and for everybody watching on TV and so on. This is not that. But the oath and the inaugural address are deeply intertwined. They're deeply connected. I should say, unlike the oath, the address is not required in the Constitution, as you point out. But Washington sees these things as deeply intertwined. And so his address is in many ways, I'd say, an elaboration of the oath, right? Because he's trying to demonstrate, among other things, his understanding of the Constitution and of the the character necessary, as you said, for the putting that Constitution into effect. That was a long-winded non-question. Let's talk about character. You mentioned it. And I think that's one of the reasons why I think this book is so wonderful and so important is that it is focused on the connection between the formal acts of government 
and the character of the people who are running the government. How did Washington see that? Right. Well, this is a big one, right? And your your question, and, and so I yeah. want to be careful with th- this response, and but not bloviate about it either. Washington was very, very much a man of the 18th century, <laughs> of the Euro-colonial 18th century. And I think it's fair to say that he was born, raised, nurtured, and exercised himself as an adult in, in contexts where the collective investment in the character of leadership and the leadership of character was taken arguably more seriously than it ever has been since. Now, and there continues to be sort of historiographical debates about overstating this, understating that. However, it seems to me, it just, it seems unarguable to me that Washington understood that machines do not go of themselves. You can get them down the road a little bit, but if you don't have someone behind the wheel, it's going to crash and burn flat out. The inaugural address seems to be an opportunity, as because you're right, it's not required. I mean, why do it? He didn't, didn't have to do it. But as you also said, everything he did was a precedent. And so he stands up and delivers what is essentially a five-paragraph, little less than 1,500-word address. So it would not have taken long. But it's a, rhetorically, it's a, it's a dicey thing, you know, because the, the over-assertion of character, well, now you're just a couple steps away from a demagogue. The under-assertion of character, and now you're just a cog sort of thing, right? The idea, the ideal is, is to figure out what the optimal space between unwanted power and not enough, that matter of character. And so it is that in that interesting way that we see sometimes, but is particularly a matter of art for some in the 18th century, of cultivating an image, a staging of one's character not by asserting it time and time and time again, but quite the opposite, right? Where in a sense, the idea is, and you'll see this in so many inaugural addresses since, that the idea is to get yourself out front and center of that stage, but then back it off a little bit. You know, you back it off. Jefferson is exquisite on this, Lincoln as well. I mean, there, there are huge passages of Lincoln in which he never refers to himself at all. But that too, of course, paradoxically, is an exquisite kind of rendering of one's character. And for listeners who haven't already heard the earlier episode with Jeff Toulis and Gary Schmidt, I really encourage them to tune in. It's self-serving. It's my podcast. But in that conversation, they really explore how this approach to, to rhetoric, how it changes, how the style of inaugural addresses changes in subsequent generations. Although not right away at first, I mean, there's much in common between Washington, Jefferson, Madison, and those, not everything, but it changes before long. One thing I really love about the book is you point out with Washington's address, which, as you say, was initial draft effort came, you know, in conjunction with his aide, David Humphreys, and that goes poorly. James Madison comes in and helps to draft this one. You say it, it proceeds almost in three parts. The first is focused on duty, right? Washington is not seizing power. He is being summoned to serve carrying out duties, a theme that he returns to in his farewell address. So there's duty, there's providence. And your book points out that he's very delicate, both in his remarks on the journey and then here, trying to strike that balance between saying too much and too little about the Almighty. And Washington is comfortable to sort of work within the the norms or forms of the day. 
Third is the Constitution itself and his understanding of the Constitution. And so in all three of these things, duty, providence, and constitutionalism, he is trying to embody and exemplify, once again, this notion of republicanism without saying this is republicanism, but by just being a republican as he understands it and trying to inspire the public to follow that model. Nicely said. One can observe that particularly 19th and 20th and 21st century readers might find this prose a little tough going sometimes. I mean, it's not yeah. the happiest first line, for instance, among vicissitudes yeah. incident to life. But actually, these things are relative, right? So in order to get a perspective on this text, which seems terribly Latinate and that kind of complex syntactical structures and so on, well, you ought to go take a look at, say, the King's speech or the Queen's speech or something like that. You'll see this sort of what seems to and did seem to Republican sensibilities almost obscene in its excess, a sort of a linguistic excess. This is actually, doesn't seem like it perhaps, but actually pretty lean. It's quite lean. I mean, one would not expect much else of Washington after all. So in terms of the, the example, the precedent he sets, the example he sets, interestingly, he doesn't follow it himself so much in the second inaugural as that one is just a few words, nothing more. And interestingly, where the first one is addressed, fellow citizens of the Senate and of the House of Representatives, where, of course, again, he was his immediate audience. His address, his second inaugural address begins just fellow citizens, which I found interesting. But to finish, how is Washington's inaugural, how does it come to be remembered and, and imitated over time? Right. Both in, the, that in maybe the first couple of generations, and then I suppose it sort of falls from memory, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, now we, we have your book. But what was the legacy of this address? Right. One of the pleasant surprises in, the, in the journey, my own journey and in following this was to have dipped into the rituals of civic life and engagement at 50-year intervals from, and so one of the chapters towards the end sort of tries to capture just a little bit, but it captures some of the ritualized celebrations of that day, perhaps not specifically that speech. And it could get a little nutty, frankly, depending on the period. But Adam, here's the thing, they did it. However, the speeches went, or Bush was the last that we look at, whatever one might happen to think of the eloquence or lack thereof, the fact is they did it. And one of the arguments I hope to have sustained is that we ignore these rituals of self-affirmation and of public memory, again, at our peril. So there's clearly other Washington texts, the, the farewell being, being the more obvious one, but this seemed to me to make a fair claim on our shared consciousness that, again, it can offer up, if we're wise enough to take it, resources for thinking about what it means to be a citizen today. Well, as I said, this is just a wonderful, wonderful book to read, wonderful to read at any time, but I think uniquely important in the current era. And so I can't recommend it enough to our audience. Again, the book is titled The First Inauguration, George Washington and the Invention of the Republic. Its author, our guest today, is Penn State University's Professor Stephen Howard Brown. Stephen, thanks again for joining us. Thank you so much, Adam. This is marvelous. And I wish you the best for the holidays. Likewise. Happy holidays to you, too. Happy holidays to our listeners as well. This is always for joining us. And please join us for the next episode of Unprecedential. <laughs>